1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
2: everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. And today, I'm honored to be speaking to two distinguished guests, Dr. Barbara Penner and Dr. Adrian Forty. Barbara Penner is a professor of architectural humanities at University College London, and Dr. Adrian Forty is uh, is an emeritus professor of Professor of the History of Architecture at University College London. And they are here to talk with us about uh, a wonderful book they uh, co edited called Extinct, a compendium of obsolete objects, a book with 85 illustrations and 85 uh, short articles about objects that have gone obsolete. Uh, Barbara and Adrian, welcome to New Books Network.
3: Thank Hi. you. Hi.
2: Uh, let's just start with the idea of the book it's a fascinating idea obsolete objects and i was going through the when i was going through the book i kind of felt nostalgic seeing some of them so can you tell us how the idea of this book came about
3: do you want to answer that barbara
0: Sure. I I can begin. So Adrian and I were part of a larger European funded research project called Printing the Past. And this looked at how new notions of the past were negotiated, and constructed through debates over architecture in the modern print media, so between the 18th and the 20th centuries. And our work package was, um, or our assignment within this larger grant was to look specifically at ideas of progress, and how grand infrastructural projects were really used to sell the idea of progress uh, to a wider public. And so that got us interested in the first instance in progress um, as a sort of narrative that accompanied capitalism and the development of uh, modern industrial cities. And we became very interested in how that narrative of progress was constructed.
2: Cool um so let's talk about uh, the definitions extinction how do you define extinction here and uh I, I was really interested when i was reading the introduction there's you you there, you use like darwin's idea of natural selection and evolution how do you define extinction when it comes to objects and how's it related to darwin's ideas
3: well this is a tricky one because to use extinction in in relation to objects uh and artifacts is is a problem because in a way objects don't become extinct in quite the same way as natural species. Uh, A natural species, once it's extinct, that's it. It's it's irrecoverable. But all objects can be uh, revived. And indeed, most things never become truly extinct They're always there, uh, whether in the form of collectible objects, um, things get made as replicas and so on. So to talk about extinction in the world of objects, it's a metaphor. Uh, and it has some, like all metaphors, it has. It's effective in some ways, but in other ways, it obscures things. So you know, we're, we're um, cautious about using this word "extinct," but you know, it's it, it's a good headline. It it works in terms of getting people to think about what's going on when uh, objects disappear from everyday or. Life and current use, so that's that's the background to it. So we we know it's it, it's a fallacy in a way, but at the same time it's convenient and it's it's a good headline. <laughs>
0: um, and if I could just add, one of the things that we found as we proceeded with editing the book is that at least some of our supposedly extinct objects came back to life as we were actually editing. Um, So we were constantly confronting this this fact that things that are extinct often don't
3: stay extinct.
2: Mm, Yeah, yeah. And somebody's... Sorry, Adrian, you wanted to add something?
3: Well, I I think I would just add a remark that Barbara has has made that, you know, dealing with objects that are supposedly extinct, you're in the world of the undead. (laughs) Nothing's ever (laughs) truly dead. Uh, And one has to to recognise this. And you never know when something's going to come back to life, and and we indeed indeed did have some surprises of this kind of things that we thought were well and truly um, defunct, um, actually, uh, like the Polaroid camera, uh, suddenly turned out to be um, cult objects that had been were now back in production um, when you know. At the start of the project, we thought that this was something that was uh, had had disappeared, mm-hmm.
2: and it's it's quite interesting because you know when you go into the market, sometimes you see new objects that are designed like vintage-looking uh, objects that had gone obsolete, some incandescent lights, for example, and there's still markets out there, and then there, there's a big market for that. People love those objects, <laughs> vintage-looking, yeah,
3: yeah. Objects. yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so so you know there are all these twists that uh, make this you know a questionable um uh, presumption to make that objects become extinct it it's it's uh, they, they there's always you know a chance that something will take us by surprise and come back i mean there's some things i think we can fairly be fairly sure won't come back um I think that um, the bloodletting device called the leukotome that we included (laughs) in the book, um, which was, you know, makes scratches, cuts, makes lots of cuts in a body, um, is probably not going to see a revival. But um, who knows, you know, there are (laughs) other things that will take us by surprise.
0: I think we can say goodbye to arsenic wallpapers. That would be the other one.
3: Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and also, I mean, products made with asbestos. You know, we've got, you know, something that, you know, we know now has lethal effects, um, widely used, you know, up until the recent past, but I think from now on, we won't see asbestos products being appearing in the world. It's, you know, as a, um, uh, a material, I think it's fairly, one can fairly, hopefully, confidently say that its day is over. Uh,
2: so let, let me ask you another question. There's, there seems to be this assumption that you've put it in the introduction of the book that uh, design is like an optimization machine that is always pushing towards perfection and progress. What is the issue with this Dar- with this with the application of this Darwinian idea to to artifacts and objects?
3: Mm.
0: Well, for one thing, it produces incredibly Western centric histories, and in this book. Uh, we were very inspired by the historian of technology, David Edgerton, who also contributed to the book. Um, But he wrote in 2006, a really wonderful book called The Shock of the Old. And in this book, he argues that historians really should aim to write user-centered rather than innovation-centered histories. And he says that by looking at technology through the lens of use rather than innovation, a very different understanding of the world emerges. So for instance, horses, rickshaws, bicycles, those become as important as cars, for instance. So pushing back against innovation-centric histories, which we've tried to do in the book, is a way of rebalancing some historical narratives. And it also allows room for less resource-intensive inventions, and uh, less, uh, yes, resource-hungry uh, inventions. So this was one reason why we felt it was an important exercise in this, this kind of constant pushing back against uh, innovation-centric histories.
3: I and mean, just to add a bit to that just to go back to the darwin analogy in in the um in, in natural history the process of evolutionary development is its purpose is to ensure the survival of the species that's that that's all it's concerned with it's not about as it were, progress. It doesn't have a destiny. There's no end, perfect end state in in natural history. All that's going on is that you have these multiple random variations, and the ones that tend towards the survival of the species are the ones that persist. Now, in artifacts and goods, there's a rather different story because there is some kind of end view. There is this expectation that they lead to something that's better and better. Um, they're not about the survival. It's not a process that's about the su- mere survival of the species. Um, and it, there's a question there, is the species us or is it the object? You know, and that's ambiguous. But it, 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 whatever one's talking about, it, the, the assumption is that it's leading to something that is always improving. But the question is, is it really? So it, it immediately, this analogy with evolutionary patterns throws up the question of, well, what is the purpose of this um evolutionary progress that we see in artefacts or that is supposed to exist in artefacts, to what end is it? It's not merely about survival. It's about something else. And essentially, it's to do with things to do with human relations. It's to do with power. It's to do with um, creating uh, authority It's to do with exercising power over nature. It's to do with uh, controlling other people. It's to do with creating wealth. Uh, There are all these other things which become issues in the pursuit of so-called progress in relation to objects. So it immediately, we, we, we start thinking, well, to what end is this, Apparent progress in object being directed, and that's that's an as it were that's the question that's it's not clear, and the fact that some things survive and some things don't, uh, throws that into relief because some of the things that become defunct actually might be said to be just as good or. Um, of better service to mankind or better products than things that, on the other hand, have persisted. So the disappearance of things can't necessarily be connected to any kind of um, story about survival. And, And that's, in a way, what we're intrigued with, you know, is, well, what is it that leads some things to persist, but other things to drop out of the picture and turn out to be dead ends, um, it's not always obvious. I mean, the classic case of this is is with uh, electric cars, because the the earliest um, automobiles were electric. Um, And yet, you know, for a 100 or more years, we persisted in using the internal combustion engine. And we've suddenly decided, well, actually, this isn't such a great idea. Um, And we've gone back to electric, which was the initial, the original model for powering horseless carriages. So, you know, there are these questions that arise as to, well, you know, well, what is progress, you know, and why are certain things, do they become obsolete when others don't? So, I mean, the whole story of automobile history is 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 a kind of classic lesson in this relationship between um, the defunct, the failure, uh, the success, and so on.
2: Yeah, you made an excellent point. That was a great example. <laughs> and let let's. Uh, you we talked about evolutionary theory, but it seems that evolutionary theory, applying that theory to 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 modernization and progress, has another problem, which is. Naturalizing the impacts of capitalism
3: as well, can you talk about that idea? Um, yes, I mean uh, it, capitalism, it, it cr- you know, creates many benefits, but it's also destructive. Um, it um, it's destructive of natural resources. It's destructive of people's lives. Um, people are thrown out of work because. You know, the things that they do are no longer seen as being of service and so on, so on. So this, you know, this is well known. This is part of the story of capitalism. It it has to destroy in order to create. Um, and how are people, you know, brought around to accepting this constant um, turmoil in their lives? Well, you know, one story is, well, this is progress. And that this is we're following an evolutionary process, which is for the, ultimately seen as being for the greater good of mankind, whether it is or not. But the evolutionary model uh, has been used um, extensively and indeed exhaustively in order to justify the destructiveness of capitalism. I think. Yes. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah I, I. that is um, I- exactly the premise that we were working from. So at the very beginning, we were looking at all of these images of um, the construction of infrastructural systems in London. So we are looking at the um, construction of... Joseph Bazalgette's great uh, sewerage system. And these were massive construction projects which involved huge upheaval, uh, the displacement of thousands of people, uh, constant noise, the ripping up of the existing urban fabric. And so we were very interested in how all of this disruption was justified. And this is where our interest in narratives of progress as this sort of palliative um, emerged from. Um, There was also another dimension though, um, in reading the urban critic Lewis Mumford um, in his classic book Technics and Civilization. He very clearly uh, argued that evolutionary theory in industrial society is used to justify the inequities that are produced by capitalism. So the rise of the bourgeoisie um, as this natural managerial class that oversees the working classes. This was, um, fundamental to his explanation as well. So it was physical and social changes, um, that, that we felt were being justified through this narrative of progress.
2: And, uh, There are a number of people you mentioned in the book. One of them is Denis Diderot, and his idea of mechanical inventions and how they underwrite progress of mankind. So can you talk about how technological developments were coupled with the ideas of perfectibility and they were all uh, depicted as a positive uh,
3: force? Do you want to answer that, Barbara?
0: Well, I think um, in terms of looking at precedence and in terms of historical figures who were important in terms of imprinting this idea of natural selection onto the physical world, onto the world of designed objects or what Diderot called the mechanical arts. And for Diderot, the mechanical arts was this very broad category that included everything from agricultural implements and tools to iron founding. Um, but we felt that Diderot, in his encyclopedia, um was a really key figure in terms of bringing this idea of uh, perfectibility into the mechanical world. And um, perhaps unfairly, but we drew on this quote where, you know, he he's looking at, um, he's looking around him and at, at people who resist change and he just can't believe it. He just can't believe that anybody would stand in the the way of progress. And he says, how bizarre is the working of the human mind? The mind distrusts its powers. It stumbles in self-created difficulties. And so he's, he's really working to establish this idea of progress in the mechanical arts as this kind of smooth, linear flow. Um, and if anybody seeks to question or resist that, they're sort of uh, um, obstructing or impeding the, this great flow of uh, mechanical advance. Um, so for us, I think he was an important figure um, in terms of establishing the narrative.
3: But uh, he's only one example amongst any number of, uh, you know, 19th century encyclopedias, you know, magazines of popular mechanics, you know, the, the whole kind of uh, production of knowledge throughout the 19th in well into the 20th century has been dedicated to this idea that we're always looking for progress, we're always looking for improvements, and that this is part of humankind's birth gift almost to assume that we're going to make things better. You know, so D- D- Diderot is a key figure in this, but almost anywhere you look, you'll you'll find evidence of this idea being played out
0: maybe we should call him a key propagandist for the idea that we're tracing
3: yeah Yeah, i think
2: that's right uh there is another thing i'd like to pose the question to you adrian the uh siegfried gideon um you had this book mechanization takes command and uh his idea he believed that progress in design is equal to social progressiveness but you're Pretty critical of his ideas. Can you tell us about him and how you criticise his ideas or why you disagree with
3: him? Okay. Well, Siegfried Gideon was a Swiss uh, architectural historian and great um, promoter of modern architecture in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Uh, and his, his, his most famous books are to do with architecture. But in... Um, the late 1940s he published this very remarkable book called Mechanisation Takes Command which is really about the story of technology um, and to some extent design and it's very ambivalent you know in some ways he's very critical of the things that technology has done and he sees, you know, the mechanisation of lots of processes as being something which um, has had quite adverse consequences as well as beneficial ones. So he's quite critical. But at the same time, there is embedded in this, this expectation that things will have a, a, an inherent drive towards their own improvement. and it, 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 the thing, the fallacy of it, is that somehow it assumes that this is contained, as it were, within the genetics of the product, the object, whatever it is, that it has a a natural drive towards its own self-improvement. Now, this is nonsensical because you know objects don't have. A genetic code within them. You know, it, everything happens by human agency. It's to do with what humans choose to do. But he believed that the natural course of events was to, to for designs to become more purified, as it were, that they had a destiny, which for him was the modernist agenda you know the purity of modern design that would lead to some a kind of final solution where you could say you'd arrived at the perfect object and this is the problem in some of his accounts he's much he's very you know although it's it's a wonderful book and it's it's really fascinating you know there's a whole long section on the history of sitting of the way in which sitting devices, chairs, and so on, uh, have evolved over time, and with to what purpose and to what end, it's full of insights. But at the same time, there is this uh, belief that he has that there is a destiny there for uh, all objects, and this is this is the criticism that I would have of of the book. The thing that. Um, uh, now anyway, makes it uh, something that we can't really accept for all the other insights in it.
0: And if I may just add, Adrian was very critical to debunking that idea um, with his book, Objects of Desire, which came out in 1986 and is still very widely read um, as an alternative design history. And I see it maybe rightly or wrongly, Adrian, as a bit of a rejoinder to Gideon and a riposte or a challenge to this idea of, the genetic perfectability of
3: objects. I I would uh, agree <laughs> with that. <laughs> it was intentional. Yes. <laughs> um.
2: Th- there are there are like over eighty objects in the book, so uh, we'll start with you, Adrian. You have written about three objects in this book. Can you tell us about one of them that is your favorite, and also tell us how you came up with the ideas of, was there an organizing principle in choosing these objects?
3: Right, okay. Well, th- there are 85 objects in the book and we we didn't have an agenda. We didn't have a, a list of objects when we started out. We simply approached uh, lots of people, over 100 people we initially approached and asked them if they would like to contribute an object of their choosing. So the selection is is a random one. Um it came the result of uh, our many contributors uh, coming up with ideas of their own. Uh, when it came to writing my own contributions, uh, what I found myself doing was looking inside my desk drawer and there uh, were all sorts of things which uh, were indeed obsolete, which no longer got used anymore. And amongst them, there was a slide rule and some old memorandum forms. Now the memorandum is an object which uh, most people won't now know. anyone over the age of 40, I should think has no idea what this is. but it was it was a printed form uh, that was used for communication within organizations that rather than writing a letter, you could follow this um, pro forma. Uh, means of, of communicating with other people or parts of an organization. Uh, and it, 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 it was interesting because it turned out to have been a very particular invention in the early part of the 20th century, which was designed to streamline communication and cut out all the verbiage of traditional letter writing. Uh, and it, it also um, uh, allowed for uh, the uh, retention of um, communications through the filing systems, which were also being developed this time. So, as it were, the collective knowledge of uh, a company or a, uh, a government office could be uh, built up over time. So the memo was a way of of, of, of setting down simply uh, communications between people within an organisation. And it it survived really up until um, at the beginning of email, which, as I say, completely superseded it and in fact borrowed from it the um, formula with, with you know, two carbon copy subjects, et cetera, a date. Um, but it's interesting really in literary terms because it it was also dedicated towards a, a kind of simplification of language. It's part of the whole process of removing rhetoric from language and introducing a new way of writing of what has sometimes been called the information genre, which is now the norm for. Most of the stuff that's written on the internet, in instruction manuals, and so on and so on, it's a ret- meant to be a rhetoric-free way of communicating, and the, the memo was one of the main instigators of this process. So it's interesting because it it, it 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 promised a future. You know, one of the things that we've been interested in is with all these objects that the object carries a vision of the future in it. And this is very clear in the memo. The vision of the future is a rhetoric-free flow of communication uh, where people speak in plain language without any of the traditional verbiage and embellishments that you found in letter writing. But they just communicate a piece of factual information or an opinion, um, but it's very dry. Uh, it doesn't need many adjectives. It's it's a straightforward, f- direct, factual communication. And it's this style of language which the memo was so instrumental in setting up and seemed to me to make it interesting uh, as a, a device to write about. Um, and one which, although it's disappeared from our lives, was in a sense very influential in forming our customary modes of communication so that's uh, that's my story of the memo <laughs> um, it's Great. it's it, um i'm going to have to leave you there mm. I, i'm sorry about that yeah. um, but uh, if yeah. that's okay I, i'm sure barbara can fill you sure, in. yeah on.
2: so we'll say goodbye to uh, adrian here but barbara will stay with us okay. to continue the conversation thank you very much adrian for for your thoughts Okay. Um, um, and speaking with us on New Books at Work.
0: Yeah, it was great Good. to hear Good. you talk through the book from me too.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's for, you know, it's now a couple of years since we did this, so it's, it's nice to go back to it and talk about it.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: We'll continue the conversation with Barbara. Um, so, Barbara, can you uh, talk about this, again, h- how this evolutionary model of technological innovation was challenged, especially after the Second World War? What were some of the reasons? And uh, there's this author here, uh, Schumacher, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, who wrote a book called Smith Beautiful. It would be great if we could talk about this.
0: Absolutely. I think the first thing to say is obviously the impact of World War II was devastating. I think that shook many people's faith um, and made people far more wary of the capacity of technologies to create destruction. Um, And and so that shift itself was quite important, but in the post-war period, we had the rise of mass consumerism and along with uh, attendant phenomenon, like planned obsolescence. And so people began to be far more concerned with the environmental impact of consumerism, the uh, consumerist model, which depended on constant innovation um, and generated a, a great deal of waste um and the rise of plastics and cheap goods were obviously part of that story so environmentalism drove some of the critiques from the 1960s onwards um in the 1970s and 1980s we also saw things like the rise of feminism And uh, feminist design historians in that period began criticizing the prevailing model of writing history and its focus on the genius inventor, uh, who was almost always a male figure. Um, And the way that certain actors got written out of histories, the way that um, the agency of users, for instance, uh, was downplayed in histories. So that's a, a sort of context. There was many things happening, many currents and counter currents. um, And the whole model of technological innovation and progress was, was being questioned. Um, EF Schumacher was uh, an incredibly important voice In this, um, he wrote a book in 1973 called Small is Beautiful. And he found himself, he was an economist, but he suddenly found himself the guru of the appropriate technology movement. And this was very much involved in uh, post-colonial critiques Um, and Schumacher, his specific criticism was of the way that technologies from advanced capitalist economies get imposed on less developed ones, mainly through development projects um, and, and uh, international aid programs, and he described this as a form of neo-colonialism. So, applying certain modes of technologies to different contexts um, where it it doesn't work as well, um, and in the place of these technological solutions, he encouraged people to look to local, low-cost, existing solutions or adapted solutions that didn't require Western interventions or uh, Western aid to implement. So it was also about self-help, resilience, self-reliance. But... This was very much um, a political critique as well, and a, an attempt to challenge this idea that somehow technological uh, progress and innovation flows in one direction. Um, it always flows from advanced capitalist societies to less advanced. Uh, less supposedly developed societies. Um,
2: And uh, another question is, uh, in the selection of these objects, um, why do you focus on interrupted developments rather than the ones that continue to work or enduring ones?
0: Adrian touched on it, I think, um, in his discussion of the memo. And what we realized is that even when an object disappears uh, or becomes defunct or obsolete, um, it It still, it often has these very complex afterlives. Um, So it leaves an imprint. So although we were looking at interruptions, we also were looking at the way these objects kind of live on um, through ways of thinking, ways of making, ways of interacting with the world. Um, and so I think we looked, we tried to understand why at certain moments in time, some objects disappear from view, but actually um, we were also very interested in the afterlife. So. Um, I'm not sure if these objects were permanently interrupted. Um, And actually, the most interesting stories in the book tended to involve those which continue to have influence, even in the absence of the object.
2: Uh, Another fascinating part of the book is... uh... The categories of extinction. So you have six categories of ex- extinction. Now we may not have time to talk about all of them. I'll leave it to you, of course, to decide. But there are six categories of uh, extinction. One of them is failed. The other one, superseded, enforced, defunct, uh, estivated, and visionary. So it would be great if you could talk about them, or you know, uh, one of them, a couple of them that you feel are more important.
0: Certainly, we when we began, we were absolutely sure that failed would be one of the biggest categories. So when we speak of a failed object, we are uh, we have in mind something like Concord, which spectacularly self-destructs, um, and almost immediately is taken out of circulation. Um, The Zeppelin would be another example here. And we thought that this would be the biggest category. The examples I've just given, Concord, Zeppelin, these are obviously incredibly spectacular failures, um, and they leave a big public impact or they have a great public impact. But actually they're relatively rare. It was far more common um, in the book to come across examples of enforced extinction. Um, And by that, we had in mind uh, objects that were taken out of circulation because of shifts in government policy or regulatory policies that insist on the phasing out of an object. So uh, we provocatively included ashtrays, for instance, as an example of an enforced extinction. We also had defunct, and those were objects that fell out of use for many reasons, lack of consumer buy-in, lack of investment, shifts in taste, shifts in fashion. Um, So an example there would have been um, from David Edgerton, he uh, wrote about flying boats, which until the war were more common than land planes, but because of their dependence on large bodies of water, they became Im- impractical. They just simply couldn't um, continue to develop. Superseded referred to objects that were replaced by another technology or another material that supposedly performed the same function better. So it's a case of a supposedly superior technology replacing a supposedly inferior one. What was interesting there was that our contributors often contested that version of events. Uh, They often actually uh, became promoters of the superseded objects. So an example there was the pneumatic postal system, uh, which was used to deliver thousands of letters and parcels across Paris. This was the particular example, but they existed across Europe and America and likely globally. Um, And they bypassed the above ground world and they worked fantastically well. Um, But nowadays with the rise of email and electronic communication, uh, pneumatic postal systems have largely been retired. Uh, Estivated objects refer to objects that had gone dormant but came back to life. Um, and they often come to life with some sort of material adaptation in order to better suit current circumstances. Um, in some cases, uh, technologies have sort of caught up with the ambition of the object and they become viable in a way that they weren't. Actually, the Zeppelin is another example there of an estimated object, something that that failed in the 1920s, but it's now being crowdfunded back into life uh, and is being touted as a possible solution for um, the environmental crisis um, because it's a, a sort of less polluting way to travel. And then finally, visionary objects. Um, And these were objects that, again, perhaps never went into mass production, but they were always there as propositions and they contained within themselves a sort of roadmap for a different kind of future. Um, And again, they, they were ways of mapping or shaping, or in some cases, interrupting the future. Um, We had some very fun visionary objects, very propositional, Um, And one of our favorites was contributed by Ben Nicholson uh, and it was Edison's anti-gravitation underclothing. Never an entirely serious proposition, but it was this idea that people could sort of uh, float, Uh, by wearing these anti-gravitational pieces of underwear and they could propel themselves uh, through the air and and float through the air. And it was an entirely absurd uh, sort of invention, but it was poking fun of the figure of Thomas Edison this idea of the genius inventor who can solve all problems. Um, And we thought it was still relevant because of the way in which our society um, still places its faith in these uh, figures to solve the world's problems. So Elon Musk, or Bill Gates would probably be the equivalent to Thomas Edison today. Um, But we like the way it sort of poked fun of um, some of the rhetoric surrounding these inventors. Um, So, yes.
2: Yeah, and you have, uh, you have a number of, you have, I guess you have three articles in this book, three objects. So I'll leave it to you, which one of ones you want to talk about, uh, the cycle, uh, cycle graph, Manchester pale system and Dolly Wardens. So,
3: <laughs> well,
0: the, I would like to talk about the Manchester pale system. That's actually, um, the same as the Dolly Wardens. um, And I can explain that, actually. But the reason I chose the Manchester Pale System, I should probably explain first what it is. It was a sanitation system that got rolled out in Manchester in the second half of the 19th century. And the crucial thing to note about this system is that it was a dry system. So instead of flushing waste away in water, so instead of using a water closet, um, the pail system had people dispose of their excrement in pails And these pails would be sealed up and collected once a week by Manchester city workers who would haul them off to a depot. The contents of the pails would then get mixed up with uh, among other things, putrid fish. And it would be turned into a commercial grade fertilizer that was sold to farmers in the outlying regions of Manchester. Um, So it was contributing to a working organic economy, at least in theory. The reason, oh, and and I should explain, that um, was sort of a, a lovely ironic, dry sense of humor, Uh, people in Manchester used to refer to the Pales as Dolly Varden's. Dolly Varden was a character in Dickens, uh, in Barnaby Rudge. And I can't quite understand why the Pales got called Dolly Vardens. She was a coquette, a very fashionable figure. Um, so I think either they were, I, I think they were comparing her hat to a pale lid. Um, but anyway, I, I the reason I think um it, This nickname is is so nice as it implies that there was a kind of acceptance of the pale system as this everyday, highly visible feature of Manchester City life. The reason that I nominated it as an object was I felt that the existence of this system was such a good reminder of how, when ideas first get introduced, so in this case, Manchester, like many other industrializing cities, accepted that it had a duty to do something about public health crises, and it needed to tackle the problem of sanitation. Um, But there was no consensus about how to do that. And there were two competing models um, in circulation throughout the second half of the 19th century. There was a wet system and a dry system. Um, The wet system eventually prevailed in part because um, the Manchester's dry system never worked terribly well. It also never turned a profit, which the city officials had always promised it would do. Um, but nowadays to us, it seems we're so uh, used to flush and forget Um to having these waterborne systems which kind of invisibly dispose of our waste. Um, And the idea that there was a a dry model in serious competition uh, seems almost incredible, Um, but it is a good example of how locked in we become to our own ways of thinking and how unimaginable alternatives can come to seem even when they are actually they have a logic and they actually are viable
2: Barbara, I thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak with us on New Books Network. And I and I can't really emphasize how great this book is. It's so easy to read, and I guess it's one of those books you can leave on the coffee table for guests to come to. You can just browse through the books. And I've been showing this book to some of my friends here, and they go through the book, and some of them, my colleagues actually recognize some of the objects that they have had in their parents' place. So it's a wonderful book, and it's, uh, it's really great to get this book uh, to understand how how technology works or to see some of the uh other side of technology which which is driven by innovation when you and adrian were talking about this biological model, i was reminded of another book that i'd written i'd read some time ago called i think it was called illusions of innovation i think that was the name so the whole idea was that you we are all in this you know data-driven economy we we're all driven by the idea of innovation and entrepreneurship but uh I guess in the past, maybe five decades, there have been very, very few inventions that have been really life-changing. Most of it have just been as human. You also mentioned they're driven by 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 profit and capitalism, uh, creating objects that uh, have not really any, maybe, functionality or use in our lives. But anyway, I'm just <laughs> talking. Anyway, thank you very much for... Yeah, if...
0: I, I was any... just going to say... Um... I know we're wrapping up, but I think that is also a a really important point uh, on which to end, which is that there's something so grandiose about this narrative of progress. um, And often the, and this is, again, David Edgerton's point, that many of the most important inventions are very humble, very modest. Um, We don't always need to look for these grand infrastructural fixes for things. Often the solution to our problems, our environmental, social problems can be, first of all, right in front of us already. Um, and, and they can be surprisingly humble. Um, so that was also definitely a theme within the book, and I'm happy it made you think <laughs> of that.
2: Thank you very much, Barbara.
0: Thank you.